and bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 10. John 10. Find verse 22. Today we will complete the 10th chapter of the gospel according to John. And then at the end of this sermon we will have uh, the Lord's Supper together. And so you can go ahead and be thinking about that. When we stopped last week in verse 21, and then we moved to verse 22, there is a, there's definitely a transition here. And I don't really know how much time lapsed between 21 and 22, but I don't think it was much time because... As we're going to see, the, the things that Jesus talked about in the first part of chapter 10, he's going to be talking about the same things here in the second half, and really to the same people, the same kind of people. And so, we're really just picking up where we stopped last week, as Jesus talked about being the, the door, the good shepherd, and calling his people the sheep. But I want to give you four things, before we get into the text, four things I want you to notice, or watch for, as we go through this section, okay? Four things to notice as we go through it. The first thing I want you to notice is who is this man? Who is this Christ that we're reading about and watching as he speaks to these Jewish people? Who, who is this man? And I know many of you are saying here this morning, I know who he is. He's Jesus and he's my Savior. He's my Lord. I've walked with him for many years. But I want to say to us, if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, there is more of Christ to know. I'm going to say it again. If we have ears to hear and eyes to see, there is more of Christ to know. Who is this man? The second question is, how does who he is impact what he does for us? I want us to see our theology, to see our religion, to see our, our study, our, our Savior, not just in the abstract, but in the practical of how he has saved our souls and what he still does for us even now. The third one, notice, is there still time for me or is it too late? As we get to the end of this text especially, you're going to see Jesus continues to preach to people who are stiff-necked and hard-headed and hard-hearted. And so there might be someone here this morning who's, who's not a Christian, who's wondering, has God given up on me? Can I come to Christ? Can I know Christ? And so you might be thinking, is, it, is there still time for me? Well, wait and see what happens at the end of this text. And the fourth one to notice is, why did people on the other side of the Jordan believe in Christ? What was the key to faith here at the end of this section? So notice and think about these four things as we kind of walk verse by verse through today's text. All right? Let's start with verse 22, and I'm going to just give you a verse or two at a time and discuss them a little different this morning, but starting in verse 22, it tells us this. It says, It was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. Now, we've already discussed in the study of John different pass the Passover, the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. We've discussed some of these Jewish festivals of the past. But you'll notice that the Feast of Dedication might sound new to you because it's not found in the Old Testament. This is a very interesting thing that, that came about during the, the intertestamental period. Between the Old and New Testament, there were several hundred years where there was no scripture given, 
Some people call it the silent years where, you know, God didn't reveal scripture to anyone. And during that time, this evil ruler named King Epiphanes, the king of Syria, came into Jerusalem and ransacked it. And he killed thousands upon thousands of Jews and desecrated the temple and did so many horrendous things. I have a list. I'm not even going to read it to you because it's just a horrendous list. Many people, uh, he's definitely a villain, and many people compare him to like the Hitler of his day. And so during that time, this evil ruler had desecrated the, the, the people of Jerusalem and the, and the temple in Jerusalem, and fi- finally a group rose up and took back power. And so they had this, this festival, this feast that, that included these candlesticks there in the temple and these lights they used. And so it was known as the Feast of Dedication, and Jews still celebrate this today. It later became known as the Festival of Lights, Feast of Lights. And now they celebrate it around the time we celebrate Christmas. And some of you already know what it is. What is it? It's Hanukkah. It's where Hanukkah comes from. And so it's a special time in Jerusalem. Many people, including Jesus, have come there to be a part of this feast. Look at verse 23. It says, Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was the side area in the temple. Jesus is walking there. And then verse 24 says, Then came the Jews round about him. I just picture this crowd of Jewish people coming and coming around Jesus. They've seen him teach. They've seen him do miracles. They've argued with him. They've debated with him. And now they surround him here by the temple during this festival time. And look at what they say in verse 24. How long... Will you make us doubt? How long will you keep us in suspense? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. When I read this statement, I can just picture these people. They're like, you know what, Jesus? We're sick of the shepherd talk, the sheep talk, the door talk. We don't want to hear metaphors. We don't want to hear figures of speech. If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly that you are the Christ. Now, as I read the first ten chapters of John, it seems pretty plain to me that he is the Christ. He's already told them, and he's shown them that he is the Christ. I don't think they really cared to know if he was truly the Christ, right? They want him to say it so that they might accuse him and either arrest him or stone him. They are trying to trap him. They're not really interested in the truth, but they say... If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Look at his response in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you. I've told you. And you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. What a response from Christ. I've told you. I've told you. You ever say that to your kids? I do a lot. I've already told you. I already told you. I already told you. I told you before. I told you. I told you. And I, so I was thinking about this, looking back at all the things he's told them and us so far in our study of John this year together. And I want to give you a few of these. And I'm going to go quickly on this. Jesus said, I told you I'm the one who came from heaven. I told you whoever believes on me has eternal life. I told you I am the unique son of God. I told you I will judge all humanity. I told you all should honor me just as they honor God the Father. I told you... The Hebrew scriptures speak of me. I told you I perfectly reveal God the Father. I told you I always please God and never sin. I told you I am uniquely sent from 
God. I think there's a few more. I told you before Abraham was, I am. I told you I am the son of man, prophesied by Daniel. I told you I will raise myself from the dead. I told you I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, and I am the good shepherd. Jesus had told them who he was, right? Plenty of times. But look at 25 again. I've told you who I was, and my works have shown you the works the Father sent me to do. I have demonstrated, Jesus says, who I am. Do you remember, it has to be like 15 years ago now, there was a man, and I think it was in Orlando, Florida, that area, and he claimed to be Christ. Do you remember that story? It was in the news. And he had a pretty good following, and I think they like, they used the 666 symbol as, as some symbol they use in their t-shirts and stuff, and like this crazy church type situation, and this guy claimed to be Jesus. And Anybody can claim to be Jesus, right? Anybody can say, you know what? I'm, and I, I saw another article this week of a man in Clearwater, Florida, who claimed to be Jesus. And just 34-year-old guy, I don't know what he's on, but he's like, yeah, I'm Jesus reincarnated, you know. Anybody can claim to be Jesus. But only the Son of God can do the works that Jesus did, right? Anybody can claim to be him. Only the work. So Christ, by his word, which was a clear word, told us who he was and told them who he was, but by his powerful deeds, he showed them and us who he is. It makes me think of John 5, 36. We've studied this previously. It says this, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, talking about John the Baptist, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. They said, Jesus, tell us plainly if you're the Christ. And he said, my works prove it. 26. The sad truth of verse 26. He says, but you believe not because you are not of my sheep as I said unto you. Let me reference John 8 47 here. John 8 47 says, whoever is of God hears the words of God the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So in John 8, 47, he says, Why don't you hear the words of God? Because you are not of God. So now back in verse 26. Why are these people not believing in Christ? Because they are not his sheep. Spurgeon commented on this verse, the prince of preachers, and he said, Your unbelief is just an evidence that you were not chosen, that you've not been called by the Spirit of God, and that you're still in your sins. Jesus bluntly speaks to these people and says, you don't believe in my works or my words because you're not of my sheep. And look at the next verse. Look at verse 27. But my sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you remember a few moments ago I told you that they were like, you know what, Jesus, we're sick of this shepherd talk, this sheep talk. We want something different. Give us a plain speech. And Jesus comes back and doubles down in verse 27 and says, my sheep know my voice. He doubles down on this sheep illustration. In verse 27, and I'm going to talk about this at the end, but I'm going to give you a preview now. There is a hearing. The sheep hear the voice. There is a knowing. Christ knows his sheep. There is a following, he says in verse 27, they follow him. 
We're going to see in a moment there is a receiving and then there is a remaining. Look at 28 and 29. He says, And I give unto them, that is the sheep, eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I want you to focus on the verse 29, the first phrase, where it says, My Father which gave them me. Christ gives eternal life to all those that the Father gives him. Another place we see that is in John 17, in this great prayer of, of Christ. And in John 17, verses 1 and 2, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. So to whom does Christ give eternal life? To all those that the Father gives to Christ. I want you to see here the security, the security of a faith that God has planned for you. If God has planned it before the foundation of the world to give you faith and give you grace and give you repentance... And then through His Son, Jesus Christ, He gives you faith and grace and repentance. And by His Spirit, He accomplishes that in your heart. Then you are eternally secure in Him. Not in ourselves, not in what we can do to make ourselves stay saved, but in Him. In Him, it says, we will never perish. Here comes the big statement, verse 30. Verse 30. As plainly as he probably can say it, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Now we preach and believe in the Trinity, don't we? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, three distinct persons, one in essence, one God, three persons. We believe this, but there are people in these times and ever since then who deny the deity of Christ. You may have some of these people come and knock at your door sometimes. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. People like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they take this verse and they say this. Well, what it means is the Father and the Son are one in purpose. They have the same mission, the same goal, the same purpose. But they stop there and they try to divide Christ from deity. But we see, I think, very plainly, from John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word, what? Was God. He was in the beginning with God. We see very plainly in the Scripture that Christ and His Father are one. And so again, the sheep, Jesus says, are in my hand, but the sheep are also in the Father's hand. So whose hand are the sheep in? Jesus's or the Father's? Yes, right, both. How strongly held are we? If we're in the hand of Christ, in the hand of the Father. And I'll, I'll point this out. I'm not, I'm not even going to debate this or spend time on this this morning because this is what we believe. But if you are trusting in Christ and you are truly a Christian, then you will always be a Christian. He will cause you to persevere in your faith by His grace and His working in your life. And, but if you're trusting in anything, anything other than Christ and depending on something other than Christ, 
including your good works, to save you, then you're not secure. In Him, though, we are secure. Something that stood out to me is I kind of studied through this, and I read a quote uh, from R.C. Sproul, which says this. I think it's up there for you. R.C. Sproul said, Theology must always end in doxology. The joyful praise of our Creator, otherwise we have not truly studied the things of God. So here's what I want you to see. In the context of Jesus talking about eternal security of the believer and talking about himself and the Father being one, there's this practical theology here. Everybody okay? Everybody okay? Okay. Marks, everybody's okay. There's this practical theology here. And I think this is important for us, church. I believe we're a church who cares about theology. More than any church I've ever served in my life, I think there are people in our church who care about theology. And not, we don't just say we care about it, we really care about it. And I know that because we'll discuss it. We'll talk about it. We'll ask questions. We don't mind debating or having some differences. and We'll work through it together. It means something to us. To, and we don't mind, I hope and I think, we don't mind growing in our theology, understanding more of who God is and what God is about. But I want you to see this. Theology that does not lead us, and theology is the study of God, so anything about God that we study that does not lead us to praise Him and worship Him and serve Him better, anything like that is not good theology. So we don't learn the Bible just so that we can be right or win arguments or be smarter than the next person or be good at Bible trivia. That's not why we study it. We study it so that we might know God more so that it might truly impact our lives. Let me give you some three, three Old Testament examples. You ready? In Exodus 3, Moses came up to the burning bush. Remember this story? And he took off his sandals and put his face in the ground. Why? Because he was on holy ground. Seeing who God, or having this experience with God, caused him to, to do something, and it was to worship. And then over in Joshua 5, let me give you the second one. Moses, Exodus 3, Joshua 5, he meets the Lord. Same thing. Joshua takes off his sandals and falls face down in worship. How about Isaiah 6? He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and Isaiah, he says, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. Then God says, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. It's this, it's this theology that actually impacts your life. How about those disciples that are out there fishing? They're throwing the nets out fishing. Jesus comes by and says, follow me, I'll make you fisher of men, fishers of men. What do they do? They drop their nets and they go. You see, true theology, true understanding of Scripture will lead to life change for us. And if we don't have that change, then we might just have some empty theology. And that can lead to, if we're not careful, legalism or a critical spirit. And I think we could be um, susceptible to these things if we're not careful. Notice, again, Jesus gives this teaching about I and the Father am one, I am God, in the midst of saying, the Father and I hold you, theology and doxology together. So how do they respond to this teaching of Christ? Let's read 31 through 36. Verse 31, after this amazing statement, I and my Father are one, they say, it says this, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, 
Many good works have I showed you for my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, let me explain this to you uh, quickly here. They, he makes this statement, this plain statement, and what do they do? They, get, they go get their stone. They're ready. They're like, no, you're blaspheming. You can't say you're God. You're just a man. And they're ready to stone him. And Jesus, I like this. It's kind of a maneuver a little bit. It, it's almost like he sidetracks them or distracts them a little bit with the Psalms. He, he quotes Psalm 82. And it, it, it's kind of interesting. Verse 34, where it says, you are gods. Little g-gods. And in Psalm 82, it's talking about the, the people of God, particularly the judges who were called God's little g in Psalm 82 because they, were, you know, they held the fate of people in their hands as judges. And so what Jesus says here is, in your, in your law, in Psalms, it's okay that regular people are called gods, the people who receive the word are called gods, but now I'm here, one who's doing the works of God. Is it blasphemy for myself to call myself the son of God I love by the way verse 35 I want to underline this scripture this in your scripture where it says and the scripture cannot be broken I like that phrase that should be a whole other sermon probably but the scripture cannot be broken we trust the word today 37 through 39 if I do not the works of my father believe me not but if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. So Jesus says, if you're not going to believe my words, believe the deeds. Believe the things you see me doing, and if you will believe those things, then you'll come to understand who I am. Remember when we began this morning, I said, some might be thinking, is it too late for me? And this is what I was getting at. Even though these people have picked up stones to throw at him, he's still preaching the gospel to them, right? It already says they picked up stones. They've been arguing, debating. They, we've said before, they, many of these people hate this man. They hate Jesus. And yet, he still preaches the gospel. And so the answer to the question, is it too late for me, is no. If you hear the gospel of Christ and you repent of your sin and believe in him, you will be saved. That's the scripture teaches. We don't know who or when God may be calling someone to himself, and so... Jesus gives these people the gospel. They don't listen, do they? Because in verse 39 it says they just try to arrest him. They're just trying to arrest him. But he, he got away. He, he eased away. And was Jesus ever going to die by stoning? It don't matter how many times they picked up stones. 
they were never going to kill him by stoning. He had an appointed way to die, didn't he? It was at the cross. Let's finish the text, 40 through 42. Before we read this verse, though, I don't know why John didn't just stop. He could have just stopped in 39 and said, well, the story's over. Jesus walked, he had his debate. He walked away. But look what he gives us in 40 through 42. Jesus went away again beyond the Jordan into the place where John at first baptized. And there he abode, there he remained, there he stayed. And many came or resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. I love this little add-on. I call it add-on. It's the sovereign word of God. But Jesus is in Jerusalem where you would think this holy city, holy people near the temple of God, surely they're going to receive the Messiah. And what do they do? We've seen it time and time again. Reject him. Reject him. Reject him. Pick up stones to throw at him. Want to arrest him. But now, Jesus goes out beyond the Jordan. Jesus goes out to the sticks. And many people believe on him. I was thinking this morning, even about this part of the scripture, my first ever ministry position that I had was in a place called Macomb, Mississippi, down in southwest Mississippi. And I was serving at a, a small church plant, and I was doing music and some working with youth. And every service, we had a bus ministry or a van ministry. We would drive a van like an hour and a half before and after every service, picking up kids uh, from our community. And none of these kids had parents that, that came to church. And most of them had really bad home lives. Um, and I, we could, I could tell you stories about that. But, and I, we noticed, and Jesse was there with me some, and we began to notice that kids like that that came from broken homes were often very receptive to the word of God. And I think it's because they just had nothing else. They, had, they didn't have a nice family to depend on or a nice home to depend on or nice clothes or anything like that. And so we could bring them to church and share the word with them, and many of them believed in Christ and would be not only believers, but would be active in church and want to be a part of the church. And sometimes the hardest people to reach are the people who are sitting in church every Sunday. They're like, I just, I'm here, but I'm just here to check it off my box for the week. I did my Sunday deeds. And I found as a, a youth minister for many years, those church kids were the hardest ones to reach for Christ. And I think, by the way, that's the case for adults now, too. So Jesus goes out beyond the Jordan to people who are out there, not, not the religious folks back in town, but out beyond the Jordan, and many believe. One reason many of them believed was, if you look at it again, is John the Baptist had a ministry out there. Even though now John the Baptist has already been killed at this point of, of the story, John the Baptist has been killed, and, but his ministry lived on. His preaching lived on. He, he was baptizing out there and pointing people to Christ. And now Christ comes and they, they believe. Even though John did no miracles, he did his mission. He did his job. Spurgeon said this, and I think this applies to us as ministers, I guess, but he said if if, dear brother, 
you're speaking in Christ's name, and you find that you have no place in such and such a town, it may be the Spirit's will that you should remove yourself to a people who will receive you. Possibly, in a place which promises less, you may gain more. Beyond the Jordan yielded more converts than Jerusalem. Jerusalem yielded persecutors. I think that's a good picture for us when it comes to ministry. I want to mention John the Baptist one more time. John the Baptist did not do miracles, verse 41 says. He was killed. Many people didn't understand him, didn't like him. But he had a ministry that God used. And the planting and the watering that John the Baptist did, we see the fruit of it here at the end of John chapter 10. Let's move into our conclusion of the sermon and I want to go back to 26 and 27 of this text. Why did so many people, 26, why did so many people refuse to believe in Christ? They were not his sheep. They chose sin. They chose self. There is a distinct difference between those who are not God's sheep and those who are God's sheep. Unbelievers are not his sheep. They do not hear his voice. They do not follow him. They do not receive eternal life. And they're not held in the Father's hand. And as the scripture said in our text, they will one day perish. That's what he says in 26. The sheep don't hear my voice. But I want you to see what he says about the sheep. The sheep hear my voice. And I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life, and I hold them. What about the sheep? Let me close by giving you nine quick things about the sheep. The sheep are unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, in anything before God created the universe... He predestined some undeserving sinners to be saved. I think this is up there, Kendall. Go hit the next slide. It should be up there. God did not do this based on any foreseen knowledge of faith or anything else. But God planned for some people to be his sheep only because of his good grace. Secondly, the sheep are sacrificially atoned for by the death of Christ. Jesus did not die simply to make your salvation possible. If you're a Christian, if you're his sheep, he died for you. He laid down his life for the sheep, it says. By his wounds, we are actually healed. He died in our place, the sheep for us. He didn't waste his death. Every person Christ died for comes to Christ in his timing. Look at number three. The sheep are effectually called by the Spirit of God. Upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God effectually, effectively calls His sheep with a life-giving voice, and the sheep do not resist. They pick their head up, and the sheep go to their shepherd. Number four, the sheep are powerfully regenerated by the Spirit of God. As the Spirit calls, He regenerates and brings the spiritually dead sinner to life, just as we're going to see in John 11, when God called Lazarus from the dead with his voice, when Christ did that, he does that in the heart of a sinner and calls us from death 
to life. He causes us to be born again, as John 1 says, not of the will of man or of the flesh, but by the will of God. Number five, the sheep are righteously justified by faith. In the saving work, the sinner receives the righteousness of Christ, and Christ takes our sin. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. And being justified by faith in Christ, the sheep are no longer guilty of sin. Number six, the sheep are lovingly adopted into God's family. Once aliens or strangers or even enemies of God, now he brings us into his family by his love. And he grants us the rights and the privileges of a child. Number seven, the sheep are spiritually sanctified by the word. Being saved from the penalty of our sins as sheep, he, the Spirit begins to make us holy through His Word. And that's why we're not settled with, that's why we, we don't settle for just a profession of faith. Once we come to Christ, we know we want to continue to walk with Christ. And He sanctifies those who believe in Him. We're being saved now from the power of sin as we mature as believers. Number eight, the sheep are permanently preserved by God. Now, as sheep do, we may at sometimes wonder. But if we are his sheep, he will call us back. As the song says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But we know he will bring us back. If we are in the Father's hand, we will always be. And we persevere in our faith, not because our faith is so strong, but because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And finally, the sheep will one day be eternally glorified. If you're a Christian, you've been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And one day, in eternity, you will be saved forever from the presence of sin. And this, folks, nine little points are just a taste of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. And we believe... God has saved us by His grace. If you're here today and you have never come to Christ, and you hear through the word that we've spoken this morning, you can repent of your sin and believe in Him, and you can be saved. And experience the blessings of the sheep. Let's pray.